Steve will come and share with us. Thank you, Lisa. A reading from 1 Timothy, chapter 1, on page 1199. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not want know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it pro properly. We also know that the law is, is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the, good gos to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. This is the word of the Lord. Is it okay to stay on this? Okay. Good evening. It's great to see you. Um, and uh, I'm going to, I have the privilege of opening up the first um, study on this important letter. Um, notice my title, uh, linking in uh, with what Dave was uh, bringing to us this morning, um, because this letter is very much about discipleship. Uh, and I share two things with Timothy. One of them is that I'm I have a dual heritage racially. So did Timothy. Greek and Jewish. Um, and I'm not Greek and Jewish, but he was. And secondly, that he was mentored by an apostle uh, as a young man. And um, I'm standing here this evening because I was mentored by an apostle as a young man in my late twenties, uh, late teens and twenties. Um, and uh, Timothy spent probably 10 years being um, spiritually mentored by <clears throat> Paul. Um, spiritual mentoring is discipleship. <clears throat> uh, Julia gave us some words, didn't she, in the all age of Discipleship is being a learner. Discipleship is being a probationary Christian. A disciple 
is being an apprentice, um, and I started in that way. My, my apostle um, was a guy called Don Rowley, the most quintessentially English gentleman you could ever imagine. <clears throat> a senior WEC worker who was a pioneer in the northwest frontier of Pakistan for 40 years, 10 years without any gap uh, break in the UK. 10 years <laughs> without any home assignment uh, or furlough as they called it. And he didn't know whether he was Pakistani or British or what uh, by the time he finished planting churches um, while the bullets were flying um, across the northwest frontier. So passing on the torch um, is the title for this evening. It's a pastoral epistle. It's just a, a, a term that's given to uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And all of them are letters of discipleship of young or younger men uh, that Paul, uh, the apostle, was spiritually mentoring. And I love verse 5. I'm not sure. I think Daisy picked it out. I'm not sure earlier on. The goal of this teaching is love. So we'll return to that. Um, and I love the way Paul believed in young people. And um, was it this morning we were saying in the service something about, oh, it was with the dedication. May we forgive them or something when, thing, when they're naughty. Um, we read some words over the dedication this morning, uh, bearing with those that are coming up, um, especially when they do things bad. But Paul said in 1 Timothy 4 and chapter 12, someone else will unpack that for you. He said, Timothy, my true son in the faith, was one of them. And then in verse 12, he says, let no one despise your youth. But be an example. And I love Paul that he kept a balance between um, one of the negative aspects of the millennial generation. There are tons of incredibly positive aspects of the millennial generation. But there are some um, snowflakey aspects of wanting to be there without paying the price to get there. And if it doesn't work, well, I'm fed up with this, uh, and quick change. And careers are made up of a whole segment, a, a chain of, of different experiences. And the world uh, has changed. And I wrestle with how much of this is biblical, how much of it is cultural. But Paul, on the other hand, believed in young people and said, don't let anyone despise your, your youth. But be an example to the believers in word conduct, love, spirit, faith, purity. Fantastic list. Um, and it's a very biblical thing to be mentored spiritually, to be discipled. You know, Elijah and Elisha was a mentor and a, 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 a trainee. Jesus, with his disciples, he was mentored. They were trainees. Paul and the apostolic band and I'm going to read some of the names of the men that he mentored 
because um, there are probably 15 to 20 of them who used to go around with him. Um, and uh, Julia and I got invaded in a restaurant by Her Majesty the Queen while we were in Edinburgh um, uh, late last year, whenever it was. And uh, she had uh, uh, eight people looking after her inside and probably another six outside, a retinue. Wherever Paul went, he had at least 15 people with him when he traveled. It was a regular mission team. An apostolic band is the technical term. And Paul was mentoring them, as the prophets did in the Old Testament, uh, for younger men who were in the school of the prophets. And um, I think we're supposed to <laughs> Yes, we were. Um, that's what you just heard. Um, so, Paul first came alongside Timothy, possibly as a teenager, uh, as early as that. <clears throat> and it was uh, when Paul came to Lystra, and that's where uh, Timothy is from, um, where a disciple called Timothy lived. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was Greek. Dual ethnic heritage. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy, so there was something about him. And one of the reasons that Don Rowley took me on was that our pastor um, sort of said, um, uh, the Lord's uh, leading this young man, um, you know, and uh, I overheard it one day. It was a bit embarrassing. Um, and uh, he'll do things and stuff. And uh, Don began to... Um, talked to me to, uh, I traveled to when he was ministering, I tra traveled with him when he was in the UK and then finally traveled with him to Pakistan and Turkey and the family um, and became like a, a, the, the, a, a third son to him. Uh, and it says Paul wanted to take Timothy along on the journey so he circumcised him because the Jews in that area knew Timothy's father was Greek. This is cross-cultural mission, all right. And then we see Paul knew the family. Um, I'm reminded of the sincere faith of your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And I'm persuaded that that faith now lives in you. That, that's in 2 Timothy 1.5. So Paul was just affirming and boosting positives uh, into uh, the guy, Timothy. And Timothy was a member of um, Paul's ministry band, his apostolic band. Um, his from Acts, that uh, Paul was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus, Secundus, from Thessaloniki in Greece, uh, Gaius from Derby, not Leicester, Derby, <laughs> Timothy from Lystra, I've put that in, also, uh, and Tychicus, uh, who was six foot six, and, please yourself, and Trophimus, who was from the province of Asia, so he was from further away. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. Remember, Luke, Dr. Luke is writing, so there were at least Paul and Luke left 
and the others went ahead to prepare in Troas for the ministry that they would do there. So, um, Paul, I, I'm struck that Paul, I, I want to go so far as to say, I cannot find a single scriptural reference where Paul ministered alone. Not one. Please prove me what, wrong, but even if you do, 99.9% of the time he was, on, uh, he was part of a group. So Timothy was involved with Paul in evangelism as well as church planting in Phrygia, Galatia, Mycenae, Troas, Philippi, Berea, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, his hometown, Corinth, probably stayed at Tim's house, uh, Macedonia and Ephesus, uh, modern Turkey, Athens, modern Greece, Thessaloniki, uh, Thessaloniki uh, modern Greece, Rome, Italy, um, and visited Paul in prison. Um, later on, uh, and Paul, uh, Timothy, I, I believe, is the one that carried the letter to the Romans uh, uh, out of Rome for Paul. And so you, you just, it's the background, it's the context, it's the relationship that I want you to get. I, I, I tried on, whatever, around Christmas when I was speaking, trying to help us to see the absolute mess that surrounded the birth of Jesus Christ, that we have made this pristine pretty nativity thing when everything was going wrong and Mary was probably annoyed with him. Why didn't you go on Trivago and get a decent room? And why did you leave everything so late? The whole context was a mess around his birth. And when uh, Bishop Jill was with us up in the um, chapel and saying, God specializes in working in mess, human mess the reality and it affirms us when our lives are not pristine and pretty and orderly and everything's as it should be when everything is not as it should be that is the territory god loves and he works in is it possible to have something for, for my throat thank you um so it, it's so encouraging so i just wanted to give this kind of really human thing uh, as about oh thank you so much oh you too I love these it's another diadem on a crown a, a cup of cold water in my name shall not go <laughs> yeah well you'll both get one but she went the furthest so she gets a bigger one <laughs> okay um so Timothy was committed to Paul and the gospel um, for the remainder of his life, and he died as a martyr in Ephesus. Um, and why was he in Ephesus? Because Paul asked him to stay in Ephesus. Now, um, thank you so much, Pat. I knew it would be cooler. Wonderful. Um, my spiritual mentor, Don, in two points in my life, told me with an authority that I hated him for not to do something and to, to take a different path in my life. That, that, this is in the later stage. He didn't sort of say, hello, I'm Don. 
do this. <laughs> Stop doing that. No. It came out of relationship. And why was Timothy in uh, Ephesus where he was martyred? He was there because Paul commanded him to stay there. So our lives can be shaped. There's another huge change that would have happened if Don hadn't said, don't do it. I advise you in the name of the Lord not to do it. And I would not have had the strategic uh, breadth of ministry that I've had if I'd tied myself down into ordination in uh, a Christian denomination. And he saw it. I couldn't. So these... Um, these letters come out of a time, uh, the pastoral epistles, they reflect a time when the spiritual gifting of apostles and prophets and evangelists began to be marginalized in the church. And they were replaced by um, bishops and archbishops in an increasingly institutional sense and hierarchical sense. Um, uh, Developing was church organized around trained, ordained, professional ministry. And part of me says, we, when we got to that, we've never been the same since. And we're now, any church or denomination worth its salt is now trying to mitigate the negative effects of this to release the people again in ministry. And we had it this morning that is it 1% of people in this country know an ordained person. Whereas 67% know an ordinary Christian. <laughs> and somebody made a comment to me, you know who you are, that uh, at some event, even a bishop couldn't find, seemed not to have found anyone to take to an event of evangelism. And my comment was, because the more involved in full-time ministry you are, the harder it is to have non-Christian friends. So my question is, why are we doing it? <laughs> and we need to be rowing back from it to release ministries. And the interesting thing is that the early church was lay-led. And there wasn't a professional um, uh, ministry in that sense. Um, when there were problems, it was people gifts to the church, the apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers who um, came uh, in on that thing. And uh, yeah, it's uh, something that is on the heart of the Lord to return us to the releasing of people. And by the way, um, full-time ministry itself was like an unknown thing in the early church. The ministry worked. Had jobs. <laughs> and um, there's a lovely one. I'm just wondering if I've got a text for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I don't think I have. Um, Paul was a tent maker. Do you remember that? He made tents. He stitched tents. And at several times in his ministry, he actually took time out, make tents, earn some money. And the brilliant thing is, he didn't just earn money for himself. He actually was earning money for his mobile team. Isn't that a lovely picture? Um, Jesus was supported out of um, the purse of wealthy people, actually women. The money has to come from somewhere. And there's that lovely time where Paul sits with um, uh, the two in uh, wherever and, uh, <laughs> and made tents with them. Two of the other church leaders, a, a, a couple. Uh, huh? Priscilla and, and Aquila, who were also tent makers, so he probably lodged with them as well. So this is the picture of the early church. Now, you, you, know, you may feel uncomfortable. I'm not digging at anybody. We are where we are in the 21st century. But uh, churches and leaders and denominations worth their salt are exploring ways to get back to releasing spiritual life in this way and to release the people uh, of God um, to be their most effective. Now, um, okay, here's what we're going to find in the letter, how to use the law of Moses. Um, you can use the law, the Old Testament, in a bad way um, or a good way. And we'll look at that this evening. But others uh, will uh, pick up on warnings against, uh, well, I think we have this one tonight as well, warnings against fashionable but false teaching, instruction about prayer in see chapter 2, the role of men and women in the church, spiritual qualifications for leaders in the church, how to relate to widows, elderly, employees, youth, and other church members. So some of the menu as to what's uh, going on in the book. So very quickly, um, let's uh, dash our way through um, the text. So verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Paul was discipling him as a spiritual mentor. We need in the churches today spiritual mothers, spiritual uncles and aunties, spiritual fathers, and uh, we need to bear that in mind as we get on. Oh, dear Dave, I'm, I struggle sometimes with this stuff. <laughs> really, it should be, let's put the kettle on and we'll, I'll just talk some more. You know what I'm saying? And, um, but there you go. Can I say one of the biggest challenges to the Western mission enterprise at the moment is that People offering for mission are coming from dysfunctional 
families <clears throat> and backgrounds that are the product of where we're at as a society in Northwest Europe and North America. And so mission agencies are having to proactively appoint spiritual uncles and aunties to go, and they're people like you, <laughs> and it's people of your sort of age bracket, to go <clears throat> to a mission field and <clears throat> run an open home of love and support and prayer and backup and be uncle and auntie to these young people. And I hadn't even heard that this was a developing crisis, um, but I, Julia and I were at All Nations at a, 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 dinner, a lunch, and um, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, through Gates of Splendor, under the shadow of the Almighty. Elizabeth Elliot was the speaker, and she was then in her late 70s, early 80s, and saying that this need, they are so vulnerable. They are so fragile, this generation that are going out. And I've spoken to people in mid and late 80s who served for 20 and 30 years in Asia, and they've said to me, we couldn't do what uh, they're facing today. It was a different world. Interesting, isn't it? And yet, um, the fragility of those facing it. So, um, Paul's way of greeting was very personal. In verse 2, the second part, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Anybody spotted this is a, a multicultural greeting? He's telling um, uh, Timothy, grace, charis, from where we get charismatic, grace, gift, and shalom, peace. Have you got it? Greek, because his dad's a Greek. <laughs> Hebrew, because his mum's a Jew. <laughs> and so Paul took account of multicultural uh, contexts all the time. Yep. I shall be it. Yep. That's right. Um, sorry, we had that. Well, I'm very glad we do. <laughs> um, I think we've got some mucked up. Uh, okay. Paul's advice about the effect of bad teaching. So here he goes. He's talking to this younger guy. And Paul's Jewish, so he gets straight to the point. <laughs> I urged you before, verse 3, I urged you, stay in Ephesus, where he was martyred. Why? So you can command certain people not to teach false doctrines anymore. This is not politically correct, 21st century language. Command them not to, with spiritual authority. Um, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. <clears throat> now, the biggest fashionable myth was Gnosticism. Um, and it was an obsession, an unhealthy obsession with knowledge. And it ultimately was about speculation and 
complex questions and minutia, you know, is for Christians with OCD or something, it, it's that sort of going in for detail, which actually is good, but not essential. I urge you, oh dear me, we've got some, right, can we look at some modern, uh, fashionable teachings, false doctrines, that I encounter from Christians all over the place. You meet Christians who will effectively, their life is saying, nobody tells me what to do. I'll do my own thing, thank you. And we need to be on our guard against the spirit of the age, for a start, And what's channeling through our lives that are not of God. And they are carnal reactions. Church fits into my schedule only when it's convenient to me. That is not Christian commitment. It's not discipleship. It is not being a follower of Jesus. It is not taking up your cross and following him. And I sat at the feet of um, Richard Vermbrand one time in, in the Middle East. And uh, he spoke about Christians in the West who are customers of Christ. What can he do for me? And then others that say, I'm a member, that's enough. And I think we've been here before, and I've said to you, as Billy Graham used to say, I can be born in a garage. It doesn't make me a car. You can be born into a Christian family. It does not make you a Christian. I have friends in the church, so I only diary the social events. And I notice, um, <laughs> you get what I'm trying to say. social events, boots blacks. To come to the teaching of the word, to belong to a growth group, to pray systematically. Whoa. Others whose lives channel something that says something like, I have the right to pick and choose which bits of Jesus' teaching I want. Actually, we don't get that right. We have signed the, we've handed the keys of our life to him. And those who say, I only choose Jesus as my best option to get what I want in life. Another one, it's not important to own and study the Bible or pray at home. Yes, it is. <laughs> if anything happens I don't like, I'll find another church. Somebody likened that to slipping off the operating table in the middle of an operation because you don't like what the surgeon's doing. 
We're in this for the long haul as followers of Jesus, trainees of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus. So Paul says of this stuff, whatever it is and wherever it comes from, and whether it's got a fancy name or not, such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Faith trumps human speculation every time. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a and sincere faith. Some have departed, he says, from these and have turned into meaningless, turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. There is a need for training, and thank God we're finding new ways uh, of doing it in these days. Let's uh, skip one. There we go. This is uh, our two, Aquila, Priscilla, in Rome. This should have been available 10 minutes ago, but hey, what does it matter when Gordon's here? So, how to avoid bad teaching. And the issue is to, Paul is saying to Timothy, you need to understand and operate properly with Old Testament law and New Testament grace. Um, so, Paul is saying, we know that the law is good. And I go to some churches and they want to slag off the law of God in the Old Testament. Anything old must be bad. I mean, where does this come from? The Lord, Jesus, affirmed the Old Testament. Paul affirmed the Old Testament. The law is good if we use it properly. Um, so there's nothing wrong with law as long as we understand its relationship to grace. And we have to apply ourselves to the scripture to get the balance. And can I suggest that people who tell me or whose lives are channeling that list of selective commitment to Christ, they have a wrong understanding of grace. It's technically called antinomianism. In other words, you're going overboard on the grace of God, and it doesn't matter. But the law says, oh, yes, it does. <laughs> so we need both. And uh, somebody once said it's like walking um, striding edge. Is that not in, on Helvellyn? Uh, where the pathway is so thin, and if you lean too far one way, you're going to be taken to A&E. And if you lean far, too far the other way, you go off the path that way down, and you're in A&E again. So law, grace, grace, law, um, it's almost a Christian tightrope walking exercise that we are in touch with what we're supposed to be doing. This is why when somebody from a Muslim background says to me, 
when I was a Muslim practicing, I prayed five times a day, or at least I was supposed to. Now I'm following Jesus. How many times a day do I pray? And so many Christians say, oh, grace, grace, don't worry about that. It's a relationship. Just put your feet up and talk to the Lord, you know. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> the scripture tells us that how we put ourselves. The Lord taught, go into your room, close the door, get on your knees, or sit, or, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's so much in the Psalms. Lift your hands, lie on the floor, you know, bow. There's so many things we can do. So we have activity and our belief, and it's holding the two in tension in a healthy way. Let's, uh, we also know that the law, verse 9, is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, and the irreligious. Um, Good churches in this day and age are seeking ways of reconnecting with British society. That can save the lost, not just affirm the found. And as we said this morning, that our churches are not the be-all and end-all. They are just filling stations, yes? And uh, we're filled to go and motor for Jesus where it's really at. So our churches are not a boat in which to fish. Our churches are a boat from which to fish, yes? Subtle difference. Now, very quickly, we're nearly there. Whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Can I make a comment about this sound doctrine? The word, which um, even I can't pronounce in Greek, means health-giving doctrine. So this sort of balance, so we're not legalistic or antinomian, you know, we're not strict, cold, and we're not all warm and fluffy, but we are holding in tension the whole counsel of God. And Paul says this is sound doctrine, and it means health-giving doctrine that conforms to the gospel. Wow. So let me just quote William Barclay. Um, he 
He says one of the biggest blots on some religion is that precept, what we're supposed to be doing, teaching, and our practice, what we do, are not expected to go together. Can I just take my time with this? Are you with me? Precept, the theory of being a Christian or a Muslim or whatever, and the practice, when they don't go together, we've got a problem, not least hypocrisy and lack of integrity. So, he says, this is a blot on any religion. In some religions, and he's quoting a situation in North Africa here, and I saw it in Egypt. In some religions, a man may be notoriously wicked, yet esteemed as being religious. Having people come to seek his blessing as that of one who has power with God without the slightest sense of incongruity. And one man told him, do you want to know what our religion is? We purify ourselves with water while we contemplate adultery. Are you with the wrong balance of law? Wrong relationship view. Christianity does not mean observing a ritual, even if that ritual consists of Bible reading and church going. It means living a good life. Christianity, if it is real, is health giving. It's the moral antiseptic which alone can cleanse a life. I hope you've got something out of that. If, if you feel there's something there that you want clarity on, I'll, I'll send it to you in email because I'm trying to interpret it um, without uh, being unfair to um, certain people. And the Lord Jesus said, I come not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it, Matthew 5. The law is the bottom line. The gospel is the gracious application of the law. All our doctrine has to align with the law, not contradict it. So let me finish again with a quote that I brought to you over Christmas. From Pete Gregg, it's possible to be too principled at the expense of kindness. It's possible to be too kind at the expense of our biblical principles. And Christian integrity is pulling both these two things together. Good doctrine is both principled and kind. It is the meeting of law and grace. And I, I think this is a, a simple sort of thing that we're going to need going forward as we 
encounter people's lives on the other side of the main road. to Google what the Bible says about God's instinct for for being different, for holy, the standard that he requires, law. We need to Google what the Bible says about God's nurturing love, his grace, his grace and truth. And we need to blend them both in decisions and actions that are truly So, again, I love Paul's comment from verse 5. The goal of all of this teaching is love. Lovely. Thank you, Steve, for 